Let me pray. Uh, Father, you are not caught off guard um, by anything that we experience. Nothing's outside of your control. Nothing happens outside of your will. Um, and Lord, so we just, we rest in that. Uh, we ask that even in the tension of what we can and cannot do um, with restrictions on uh, how we live, that we would really use this as a time to reevaluate how we live um, and how we live with you and how we structure and think through um, what we do with what we've been given. And so I just pray that even in this, um, Lord, there's something so amazing historically about the church that the church tends to thrive in the most um, strange and even hostile environments. And so we just pray that you would equip your church, um, us as brothers and sisters, us as followers of you, Jesus, uh, to really keep you supreme and keep you um, at the front and center and that it would be your lordship that really does help us think through how we should approach this. Um, and so I just pray also, Spirit, that you would just um, comfort us as the comforter, that you would just draw near to us in this season, and that even this morning you would use this as a time to um, uh, just refocus our minds on how you want us to be thinking about this and how you want us to be seeing you and what you're doing in this season. So we invite you into this time and ask that your word uh, would be what just lands in our heart and our mind and continues to encourage and, and strengthen us and build us up as your body. We love you and we need you and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So this week, um, I had a lot to um, you know, think through. I spent a couple days reading um, tons of scripture and prayerfully trying to think how we can approach this season and what could actually be uh, not just encouraging and comforting, but also equipping. Um, I ran into Ecclesiastes 3, and many of us are familiar with this passage. I want to use this as, as a bit of a launching point for what we're going to uh, look at today. But if you remember Ecclesiastes as a wisdom literature, it really is, I mean, it's a down-to-earth, really real and raw book about, I mean, disappointments, about plans, about how to actually live life. And in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, it says this, for everything, there is a season, everything, a time for every activity under heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. There's a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance and rejoice, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. That's, that's for mourn, like a, 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 a kind of a holy mourning and a time for war and a time for peace. Now listen, these times are not normal um, and it's times like this in these seasons where we kind of think like, you know what we need? We need something new. Like, like, that's what we need. We, need. we need a fresh approach. We need something new. We need something really strategic and novel. We need to be innovative in this season. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes there's seasons like that when we think about our lives, that there is that need to really think outside of the box, to be innovative, to, to think fresh. Um, but if you notice about this passage, nothing that was mentioned there are passive things. They're all active. 
So even refraining from something is actually an active activity. And we see that in scripture with Sabbath and rest. Resting isn't a lack of something. It's actually intentionally actively focusing on the right something. And in seasons like this, I don't actually think for us, and we have to kind of fight this temptation, I don't think we need new stuff. I don't think we need innovative strategies. I don't think we need primarily to think um, strategically and fresh about what we need to do as followers of Jesus and as the church. And why do I think that? Well, because there's a lot of old stuff, basic stuff that many of us haven't actually started practicing yet. And growing up uh, doing martial arts and boxing and then playing university basketball, it was always amazing to me with the discipline of how often coaches would drill the fundamentals, right? You drill the base. I mean, in boxing, why do you do thousands and thousands and thousands of jabs? Well, well, because that is a fundamental. And without jabs in fighting, you have no defense or offense. In basketball, same thing. Why are you constantly working on, on dribbling and ball handling and, and pivots and weird feet, stuff with your feet? Well, because if you don't get that down, you can't actually pass, you can't shoot, you can't play the game. And sometimes we think that we're ready to move on past fundamentals. And it's like, well, I'm going to level up now. Like my, spirit, my spiritual life, I'm, my Christian life, I can level up now. Yet we're not even practicing the rhythms and disciplines that are the fundamental things to our life with God. So what we're going to do over the next several weeks, we're going to take some of the things that we already know. We already know these things. And I'm not doubting that we know them. But we're actually going to start to apply them. And for some of us, and again, pastoring you, I get to see this a lot, where it's like, hey, I'm really struggling with this, and you know, I'm fighting this temptation, and I'm disappointed here, and I'm anxious with this. And then when you start to actually dig into your life, and you start to go, okay, so how's your prayer life? How's, how's your time in study? Like, how much of, of who God is, is kind of coming at you and shaping you right now? And it's like, well, well, none. Okay, so how much are you Sabbathing and truly resting in the fact that God is sovereign and fully all-powerful and in control? How much are you resting in that and truly Sabbathing biblically? How much you do? Well, well, I'm not. And it's like, well, we gotta get back to fundamentals. And I think this is what's really important as we revisit these things over the next month. Practicing fundamentals is preparation. They're not, they're not opposed to each other. Practicing fundamental things in our spiritual life is preparation for the future. Practice always has a future goal. It always has a future result and a future aim. And so what I want us to think about is in this season, even if we're frustrated and we feel the sense of like this crazy disappointment and anger and angst, what does good faithful service and stewardship look like in this season? Like right now, how do I actually use these next several weeks to, to move towards goals that actually are meaningful? And, and even better, even a better question is, is who are you going to become over this season? If there's a time for everything, and this is a time of preparation and a time of fundamentals, who are you becoming and how are you going to become that person? And last week, when we kind of talked about the new year and, and resolutions and goals, you know, one of the things I mentioned was like how you spend your day is how you spend your life. 
So how will you use the time and the energy and the relationships and your family and your household? And how will you use all of that in this season right now to faithfully steward what God has given you? So today with that as the backdrop, I want us to look at how we can plan for this season. (laughs) How we can actually plan and move towards things that matter when all of our plans change. And there's so many things that you could do with this. Um, And I think some of us, like if we're just honest, some of us are amazing planners. Like some of you are supremely gifted in this area. You're super organized. You're really clear on how to forecast the future uh, outcomes and, and successes and future goals and then move towards them. You're just really gifted that way. But others of us, we're not at all. Like we kind of, we just wing it. Uh, We kind of have our head down and day to day, it's just like, I got today, I'm just gonna look at today. I don't need to consider the future. I don't really need to set goals or plan things out because all I got is today. And what's interesting is actually truth on both of those tendencies. And there's a shadow side and a weakness to both of those tendencies. And scripture actually has a lot of wisdom for both types of people. How we plan or don't plan matters. How we plan and how we don't plan actually matters. And so I want to just jump into James 4, and we'll look at a couple verses in James 4, starting in verse 13. And just to give you a context while you flip there, or while you scroll there, uh, the context of James 4 is James is writing this letter to really connect faith, what we believe in our head, with our life what we actually do with our life, okay? And that's the whole context of what James is doing. And he's just hammering at this really important um, relationship between what we do and what we believe. And in this context of chapter four, he's specifically warning the church against worldliness, Okay, now when we hear, say the word worldliness or worldly, um, that's not used well sometimes. Uh, what worldliness always means in scripture is godlessness. It's living your life, planning your life, um, just kind of putting your your goals and dreams and energy towards things that have nothing to do with God. Like God is not even in the equation. He's not even considered in that. That's worldliness because there's other goals, there's other things, there's other um, objects of worship that we move towards. And he's warning against worldliness and then he's calling for humility. And then watch what he says in verse 13 of chapter four. Come now, you who say, so that's just James's way of saying like, all right, cool, let's talk. All of you out there who say, tomorrow, today, yesterday, whatever, we, we will go into such and such a town. Uh, you know what I'll do is I'll spend a year there and then I'll, I'll trade this and then I'll make a profit, okay? Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead of living like this, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we'll do this or we'll do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. See the connection, the flip side of humility. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for them, it is sin. Big picture, main point of this passage. How you plan points to what is, in, is most important, okay? How you plan points you to what is most important to you. Now, life's most important things usually get a plan. Wedding, career, education, financial goals, personal achievements, those get a plan because they're important to us. 
Okay, so here's what I want you to think about before we dig into some of the things that we can help refine and apply here. But what plans have you actually made for this year? The temptation is to not make any plans at all because things are so up in the air. It's just like, well, I don't even know. Like, we don't even know. It's like, no, no, but, but actually we're, we have to plant. Like, we're, we're commanded to plant. This is important that we plant. But what plans have you made for 2021? What, what kind of five-year goals do you have? What plans do you have for retirement? What, what plans do you have for your career and your education? What plans do you have for your family and your kids and, and your marriage? What, what plans do you have for tomorrow? What plans do you have for this week? What plans do you have for this month, for the next five weeks while we're in this lockdown? What plans do you have? How much did God factor into any of those plans? That's what James is getting at. Did he factor into it at all? Or did you just kind of make plans, decide how you're going to manage your time, how much you're going to invest here, how much energy you're going to invest into this venture, how much money you're going to put there, and then just ask God to bless your plans? There's a big difference. And James is getting to the posture that underlies how we actually plan and make decisions about our life. Because your plans point to what you want most and trust most. Now, what he's not saying is, don't plan. Don't set personal goals. Uh, there's a really good saying, failing to plan is planning to fail, right? And that's true. And biblically, that is true too. There's lots of wisdom about that. Um, one of my favorite characters from Proverbs is the sluggard, just because I, I like the word sluggard. It's just a good word. Um, listen to all the examples in Proverbs. I'll just share a few um, of the sluggard, of someone who doesn't plan, okay? Proverbs 20, verse four. The sluggard doesn't plow in the fall and he will seek at harvest and get nothing. Okay, see the connection. You're not willing to do anything now to do the hard work or plan at all. You're not going to actually reap any kind of rewards later. Proverbs 6 is a longer passage about this wisdom, but I just love this. How, you know, God constantly draws our attention down to things that we would deem insignificant to show us how insignificant we are sometimes, right? Watch this. Check out the ant. Like, like not like uncle and aunt, but like the ant, like the insect. Check out the ant. Consider their ways and be wise. Okay, I just, like, I just love that. It's just like, hmm, very, very wise, Lord. What do you want me to hear in my devotion today? Have you considered how wise the ant is? Uh, and it goes on and says, without chief or officer or ruler or king, the ant prepares bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. I just love that. But see the connection between planning and future kind of successes of how we plan. And then last, Proverbs 24, 30. I walked by a field of a sluggard and it was overgrown with thorns and its walls were broken down. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and unmet desires like an armed man. Now this is crazy because in kind of a hustle culture, the flip side of that is that you deserve just to, to enjoy, just to rest, right? So all of this idea of like a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of my hands, I'm just gonna sit back, I'm just gonna passively enjoy my life, right? That's the goal of everyone. Like everybody's retirement goal is just to sit on a beach, drink pina coladas, get wrinkly, and then die, right? And it's crazy because scripture right here just goes, oh, okay, just a little sleep, a little rest, a little slumber, fold your hands, kick your feet up, and poverty will come on you like a robber. And unmet desires, goals that you will never achieve will come on you like an armed person, like a gunman. 
That's an amazing passage that connects this importance of presently planning. But God's saying here to make plans without God is to play God. To make plans, set goals, make decisions without God is to play God. And this is why the underlying lesson here in this text is humility. We're not honest about our limitations. Uh, We're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. One commentator uh, said this about this text. It was really helpful. said that James isn't trying to banish planning from our lives. He's not saying don't plan at all because that's what faith is, right? Just just live your life, wing it uh, by faith. It's like, that's not what he's saying. But only the sort of planning that is self-sufficient and self-important and it keeps God for Sunday, but looks at Monday to Saturday as mine. Church, what James is getting at here is he's calling out a compartmentalized Christian life, which is so rife in the Western context that we can have this Christian belief, this faith, affect only the things that I decide they're gonna affect. It's not gonna affect my politics. It's not gonna affect my finances. It's not gonna affect how I behave in the public sphere. It's not gonna affect my sexuality, my romance. Because kind of, I mean, we've, we've really evolved past what the Bible says on that. It's not gonna affect how I decide, think about masculinity and femininity. We're just gonna move past that. And so this is compartmentalized Christian faith that doesn't actually have God at the center, but fools us to think that we do. It's warning against a faith that says, I trust God, but a life that says, I trust myself. That's what James is warning us about here. That's why it's about humility. That's why he's calling out the pride and the presumption of that and the arrogance of that. So just listen, brothers and sisters, the theology that matters, the beliefs that matter the most aren't the ones that you profess. They're the ones that you practice. The beliefs that matter most are the ones that you actually practice. And if that doesn't lead us to think differently and plan differently and set goals differently and make decisions differently, then we have to slow down and reconsider how central God is in all of that. And I think the flip side of this that James is exposing He's exposing three assumptions that kind of like hang under the surface of this. That's why he uses like a business person as an example here because there's just kind of self-sufficiency. He's like, I've got this much money. I'm going to go into this town. I'm going to invest this and then I'm going to get a profit, right? Because everything's just about, about me, my stuff and what I'm going to, the return on investment of what I'm only going to really put my life into things that are going to give me a return on my investment. I'm only going to put my life into people. I'm going to only going to invest in relationships that aren't toxic. I'm going to cut all toxic people out of my life. You know, we say stuff like that, not realizing that you're the most toxic person in your life. It's like, okay, cut yourself out of your life. That's a good idea. Not at all. And biblically, we're called to understand these underlying assumptions. The assumption that we have more time. Church, you don't know if you have more time. You don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know if you have tonight. There's a humility that is engendered by the fact that I don't know how much more time I have. And secondly, he's exposing that we think we're in control. And now by God's grace... If there's anything that the last year has taught us, we are not in control. We are not. And third, James, the underlying assumption is that we can do anything we set our mind to. That we can be anything we want to be. That we can do anything by our efforts to determine our destiny. 
Now, here's what's crazy. We have more time. We're in control. We can do anything we set our mind to. Does that sound familiar? Because that is literally everything that floats around in the ether of our culture. Plan your future. Decide what you're going to do with what you have because it's yours and it's about you. And then go be somebody. And then go be your best self. And then go crush your goals. It's so normal. That's the thing. So James is like, that sounds very normal. But the counterintuitive piece is that it's actually arrogant. It actually lacks humility. And that it's not befitting for a Christian. That as a Christian, if we just live like that, there's a huge disconnect between what we think we believe and who we think we trust and the faith that we think we have and the life that we actually live. So you'll hear stuff floating around today. You hear things like, well, life is what you make it. And you're like, okay, I get it. Like I get the sentiment, but that's only half true, right? It's true in the sense that our, our life is actually determined by our choices, that there are real consequences to what we do, okay? What we do and do not do. So, so life is made up of decisions and choices that we make. That is true, but it's only half true because underlying this is the belief that our future, our destiny is determined entirely by our choices and our decisions. That the only, like we gotta get to our destiny, so we're gonna make the right decisions to get to our destiny, right? So if we connect those two, guaranteed success but there's so many things that happen outside of our control. And we're impacted by other people's decisions and their movement towards their destiny, both positive and negative. So you see how it's only half true to kind of think through like life is what you make it. Um, personally, I wouldn't want to live in a world where my future destiny is based entirely on the sum of my choices. Okay, anybody with me on that? Like, 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 my decisions make my destiny. Why? Well, because I'm a bonehead. And I've made a lot of decisions that were like, man, praise God that he did not actually allow that to play out. Praise God that he stopped me in my tracks on that silliness. Praise God that my decisions and plans were actually thwarted and stopped and God interjected and intervened. Thank God, right? That's the kind of humility James is getting at here. Knowing how much we don't know and how little control we actually have, no one would really say that they want to live in a world where their future destiny is based entirely on their choices. No one actually believes that. So just listen, if God gave you everything that you have asked for, he wouldn't just be unwise and unloving, but he would be evil. That's why James says it the way that he does. That's why he talks about boasting as being evil. Now, as a parent, if I said yes to everything, my kids wanted, my children and our life would be a train wreck. That no is sometimes the most loving thing that a parent can say to a child, even if they don't understand it in the moment. And no is the most loving thing that God can say to you and I sometimes when we're making plans and we're making decisions for our future. Uh, Morton Lloyd-Jones, great Welsh preacher, one of my favorite influences, um, said, I thank God that he is not prepared to do anything that I ask him. <laughs> I can now say that I am profoundly grateful to God that he did not grant me certain things that I asked for and that he shut certain doors in my face. Now in kind of the pop culture evangelical thing that we inhabit, uh, we all we kind of like say, oh man, if God closes one door, he opens three others. It's like, well, what if he just closes a bunch? You know, like, what if he just closes those doors? 
And then you don't really have like a lot to go on as far as just like, well, why? Why did you do that? And where's my other three doors, God? I think that we, we get so far away from what it actually looks like to relationally trust in and make plans and move towards God's will that we lose touch with what this actually is doing to our heart. And what, that does, what this doesn't do, it definitely doesn't, doesn't foster humility. It doesn't foster true faith and relational trust in who God is. But what do we do with, with plans here then? Like, well, how do we understand how we plan? Well, biblically, uh, here's a tension. And again, there's lots of tensions in scripture. Be, be aware of any teacher or person who sees scripture so black and white that they don't leave room for tension, okay? Because you see that a lot today. Things are just so cut and dry for everybody. Everybody just has the perfect exegetical way to look at a text and there's no tension. There's no gray. It's so black and white, okay? There's lots of tensions. Watch this one. Biblically, we don't see that our plans and choices have no impact on our destiny. That's true. But we also don't see that our choices and plans control and determine our destiny. Instead, what we see, enter God into that tension, that God who is sovereignly in control of all destiny, the destiny of of all things, he relates our choices to our future. Well, he moves history along to the fixed and certain end that he himself has determined. Okay, so now that doesn't mean that there's no freedom. It doesn't mean that, that, that we're, we're locked into that as robots kind of being deterministically moving towards that end. But what it does mean is that we're free within that as we move towards the fixed and certain end that God has determined because he's sovereign. That's really important. And that again, when understood, shouldn't make us arrogant. It should make us humble. And if there's one thing that we in kind of our Baptist reformed world is that we see a lot of arrogance about the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God shouldn't make you arrogant. It should make you way more humble because if he truly is the one that's moving history along to the fixed and certain end of a renewal of all things, then we better be humble because we wanna be a part of that plan, amen? And that is why James is getting at the heart of the issue here. The heart of the issue isn't planning or not planning. The heart of the issue isn't even like having your plan succeed or fail. The heart of the issue is humility. It's to, to, to plan and live life without considering the one who gives you life isn't just a matter of preference. It's a matter of pride. Pride is just simply independence from God in anything that I do. We don't have time, but if you go back to the garden, that is exactly what underlies sin. It's like, oh, I got this. It's self-reliance, it's self-sufficiency, it's planning life and living it without any regard for the rule and will of God. It's pride. That's why James calls it arrogance. That's why he calls it boasting. C.S. Lewis famously said that the essential vice, the utmost evil is what? Pride. Pride leads to every other vice, every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's what pride is. And here's what's crazy. Our culture today prides itself on pride, on on independence, on being self-made, on being autonomous, on setting foolproof plans and writing self-help books about them so that we can live and work and plan for personal comfort, security and happiness, and then just go get it. And it's all based on the arrogant assumption that we're in control. And as an aside, just lovingly, being a control freak isn't a personality quirk. 
It's a symptom of pride and a lack of trust in who God is. Some of us parent out of control freakness. And it's not just, oh, it's my style. It's that you're proud. Some of us live life as a control freak. And we're like, no, no, but it's just that I'm organized. It's like, no, no, it might be that you're proud. So there's, there's a really, really important things there. It points to the underlying heart issue. That, that the being sovereign and self-defining things and only kind of getting, I, I, this is the other way it shows up, is that I'm the only one who gets a say on, on how I should live my life. The only thing wrong with that approach as a Christian is that it's not in the Bible. And that actually being embedded in community in the church gives other members of the church full access to comment on how you're living your life. And time and time again, we see this so confused where we see people leave churches, we see people leave the faith because someone so-and-so commented on their life. And it's like, well, what did you think this was? Like, what, what did you think following Jesus, dying to yourself, picking up your cross and following him with your brothers and sisters who have also been freed from slavery and adopted into the family of God, what did you think that was going to do? Like Gabriel and Reina point out each other's flaws in the best way possible <laughs> because they're brother and sister. And this, I think, is exactly what pushes up against everything that evangelical Christianity, the pop culture of evangelical Christianity that kind of floats around out there, the books that are, are written, the, the pastors who are given platforms, because it is about us. It just says it's about you. God is going to surrender to your plan for your life. He's gonna help you. He's gonna give you advice. He's gonna give you wise counsel on how you can live your life. And James calls this arrogance. He says, you boast and you brag and your boasting is evil. You speak with pride and you speak with self-satisfaction of your awesomeness and your achievements and your abilities. Now, here's what's crazy. That couldn't be more true today about our culture. Like, like boasting is a cultural virtue. Like, like, you know, the humble brag, you know, that's not real, right? You can't actually humble brag because bragging means you're not humble. But like boasting is a cultural virtue. We use all of our speech and our actions to draw attention to ourselves, to build platforms, to get the one up on people who aren't as, I mean, generally awesome as we are, right? As long as I can just push my way to the front of the line and be noticed. All of that, pride. All of that, boasting, arrogance. Not a bit of humility in that. Leonard Ravenhill, I've been reading a ton about revival lately. Leonard Ravenhill was an American evangelist. And he said once that today God, this is, this is like, 100 years ago. Today, God is bypassing people, not because they're too ignorant, but because they are too self-sufficient. Church, you don't need to know more. Like your primary goal in the Christian faith isn't, shouldn't be information. It shouldn't be knowledge. It should be living truly all of life without a bit of self-sufficiency left in you. A complete reliance and trust on who God is, what his plans are, and a complete surrendering of all of the plans that you have at his feet to say, to truly say, God, let your will be done in my plans right here in my life as it is in heaven. Because if there's any destiny worth moving towards, it's his. If there's any destiny that doesn't get touched by time and space and disasters and COVID and restrictions, it's his. And I love that James just kind of humbles us all by going, you're a mist. You're just a vapor. 
today we're like, no, I'm a snowflake. You know, it's like, nope, no, you're a mist. Super encouraging. We should just like do biblical like mugs with like biblical things on them. You know, it'd be great. That'd be a crazy idea for us. But like, you're a mist, like you're a vapor. Like today, like it's cold, right? You go outside, you breathe your winter breath as quickly as it shows up and disappears. That's you. That's your life on the scope of eternity. And you're like, mm, yeah, minister to my soul, right? But, but this is really important because we're frail and we're dependent and we're weak and we're vulnerable. And our life really is a blip on the scope of eternity. And we're gone without a trace. Many of us don't even know our great grandparents' names. Meaning your name will be forgotten one day. And that's not to depress us. That's just to humble us. There's something so humbling about that. It's like, oh, remember you're a mist? And you're like, wow, as a mist, I better pull something off while I'm misty. Right? Now listen, none of us would actually say, I'm the sovereign ruler of my life. None of us would say it. Okay? I know you. None of you would say that. But some of us definitely live like we are. That's what James is getting at. And a little bit later, a little bit earlier, sorry, in chapter four, James says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is a season of humility. There is a, a humility and a reliance on God's plans and character that show up and that take precedent over how we plan. So instead of just kind of making plans, setting goals, and then asking God to like give us advice on them and bless them, instead, with this in mind, we, we live and we say, well, I'll make some plans, but only if they're in your will. I'll set some goals, but feel free to show up and smash all of them because I want your will to be done, not, not mine. And thankfully, James equips us at the end and he turns the corner on some of the practicals, right? And so he says, so don't, don't do that, okay? Don't do everything that I just yelled at you about. Don't, don't live like that. Instead, do this, okay? So it's really, really helpful. Instead, do this. And in verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we'll do this or we'll do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, okay? So he's saying, don't, don't do that. But instead, do this. If the Lord wills, then we will, right? I, lo I love the wording there. If the Lord wills, we will. And then he opens it up even more. We will do, do this or that, Right? So see how open that is? It's like, it's like, if the Lord wills, then we will. And then in that, we'll decide whether it's this or that that we should actually pursue. But in that, it's the Lord's will. It's the Lord's plan. It's the Lord's choices of, of how we should live obediently with our life that, that conditions everything else that trickles down from that. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean hyper-spiritualize everything you do. Okay? It doesn't mean you have to say an incantation before you do everything. Just like, I'm, I'm gonna go make coffee now if the Lord wills. It's like, no, the Lord wills you to make coffee. And if you don't drink coffee and you drink tea and you're against coffee, there's repentance to be had there for sure. But it doesn't mean you need to say an incantation before you make decisions. But what it does mean is that we need to make plans in light of God's will. And I spent a lot of time in Proverbs. I ran across Proverbs 16. It's an amazing text, smack dab in the middle of the book. And usually in, 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 in different poetic books, that's done on purpose, where there's like kind of like the hinge, the key pivot in a book is right in the middle so that we don't miss the real point of the climax of that text. And Proverbs 16, three says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and then your plans will establish, be established. Okay, so, so commit to the Lord whatever you do and 
then the Lord will establish your plans. Okay, now usually we think the opposite, right? Just see how backwards that is? It's kind of reversed. Usually we think, no, no, I'm gonna commit my plans to the Lord and then what I do will succeed. But notice the opposite there. It's that I'm actually gonna commit to the Lord everything that I'm doing and because I'm gonna commit everything that I'm doing to him, my plans, future tense of what I'm going to do will succeed. I love how that stresses that. Commit what you're doing and what you will do will fall in line with God's will. So commit what you're currently doing to God's will and what you will do will fall into God's will. It's an amazing truth. It's an amazing thing to meditate on and reflect on. Commit your entire life to God and then you'll make good plans. You see that? And so often we just think about, well, I mean, this plan in my compartmentalized Western Christianity, that doesn't really have anything to do with God. Maybe I'll pray about it. Or you know what? Actually, I really want this. So I'm gonna go do this. Then I'll ask God to bless it. And God's just like, well, how can I be a part of that? You haven't even given your entire life to me. You haven't even allowed me to radically reorient and shift your life around in accordance with my will. So how am I then gonna come and, and affect your plans? It's completely backwards. So I think James often is called the, the, the New Testament Proverbs. I think James is reflecting Proverbs 16. And he's actually just reapplying it fresh to us. Because I think if we're honest with our heart and we're honest even with how we're feeling in this season, too many of us really just want God's advice. We just want God's guidance. Want him to just kind of like put a blessing, breathe blessing on what we're doing what we plan to do, and, and then go get it. But listen, we need more than God's guidance. We need more than God's advice. We need God's will. We need God's plan. Like, we need God's purposes. So this kind of prayer really is reflected in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, like, your kingdom come, your will be done. God's will happens everywhere that God rules. God's plans take place everywhere that God is in control. You with me on that? So, so if we want God's will to be done, then we need God to rule over our entire life, not compartmentalized, but our entire life, and then we can entrust our plans to him. And so often, church, like we live outside of God's will, we pray to God to give us something in our will and then we get angry at God when he doesn't submit to our will. And in all of that, first of all, God's like, no, not doing that. But secondly, it points to what we actually trust and who we actually trust and what we're actually planning. So here's the way to actually trust God in this to plan inside God's will. And there's lots more that could be said about God's will, and we can talk about that a little bit more. But just for today, we need to change how we pray. We need to change how we think. We need to change our posture so that it's conditioned by humility so that we say, not just I trust your advice or I trust your, your plan even, but that I trust you. God, I, I trust you. There's nothing else that I wanna throw my life at except you. And that's, that's what's amazing about Proverbs 16. The word commit means throw my life onto. It's like, so I want to, like, I, tr I trust you. So do what you will. 
Do what you will, do, do it when you will, and do it how you will, unconditionally. I'm gonna throw my life on you, Lord. I'm gonna throw my life at you. I'm gonna unconditionally trust God with every aspect of my life so that he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to, and where he wants to. And when we start living like that, that's when we can actually start saying, so God, within that, here's my plan. <laughs> here's my plan for my career. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm praying. Here's what I'd love to see happen. Here's my plan for my finances and what you've given me and stewarding what you've given me. Here's my, here's my, my family plan for us as a family and, and, and our kids and, and us and, and our marriage. Here's our plan. Here's some of our goals. Here's some of our metrics. Here's my plan for jobs and education. Now, tweak them. Change them. Do what you want according to your will and plan. That's what James is getting at. So to double back on last week a little bit about thinking through how can we approach this year and think about setting resolutions Setting goals that are big enough that scare us, right? Setting goals that are enough to like make us realize that we can't do them. In this season right now, over the next five weeks, will you trust God with your plans? Not just theoretically, not hypothetically, but practically. And how do we do it? Well, it comes out in prayer. How can we actually throw all of our desires, our goals, our dreams and plans at him? Well, in prayer. And, and then whether, whether the plans themselves succeed or fail, we can actually, in prayer, trust that his plan is being worked out and it's better. And I just love Romans 8, 28, that, that we know, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Not all things except, not, not only things that succeed, but all things for those who love God. Now, if you don't love God and, and you don't want to trust God and you're not actually wanting to live according to his will, then go get it. You'll just, I mean, you'll be James 4. Just go do that. But for those of us who love God, all things work together for good, everything. Because there's only one fixed certain future that we're moving towards and it's his. And it means for us as followers of Jesus that we're completely free. Now, I know we talk about freedom from sin, um, like we kind of speak about it like at a really deep spiritual level. And sometimes we can miss some of the practical levels of our freedom. That if we understand this tension of God fixing things and, and his plan and his will and his destiny being fixed and certain, but our, us having freedom to actually move towards it and make decisions, then it means that we're truly free. To, to plan, to make choices, to work towards God's sovereign, perfect, fully settled destiny for, for all things. We're not pre-programmed -pre robots, nor are we totally free, autonomous, independent selves. We're neither of those. We're in this tension, this tension of God being fully in control, but us having freedom to actually throw our life into and onto his will and trust him. We're free. We're totally free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So now, church, even in this season, we're free. We're free to rest for the next five weeks. We're, we're free to plan. We're free to make decisions. We're free to set goals. We're, we're free to produce and get to work. We're, we're free to read more books. We're, we're free to have more conversations with people. We're free to try entirely different things outside of the pressures of control and performance knowing that some of our plans and some of what we try will succeed 
and other things will fail. But if we plan in light of God's will and we honestly pray, Lord, let your will be done, then he promises to work all things together for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, just as we've done nothing to warrant and deserve the work on the cross that you've done on our behalf, we do nothing to contribute to what you are working out across the scope of history. So Lord, what we do want is we want all of what we do, all of our plans, all of the things that we, we can and cannot accomplish, all of those to be thrown onto you in relational trust, in true faith. So for each of us, I just pray that the more that we think, Lord, about this year and last year and start to think through plans and decisions, I pray that over the next five weeks, Spirit, you would, you would meet with us, that you would comfort us, that you would fill us and encourage us with more trust in you, and that it would be your will that is done over these coming days and weeks. I pray that we really would revisit some old practices and disciplines that we need to know and commit to fresh, and that we would come out the other end of this truly transformed, truly different, living life that really does scream, let your will be done and not ours. So we give ourselves to you, we commit ourselves to you. And even now, Lord, as we log off and go and respond to this, I just pray that what, however we do it, if we do it in silence, if we do it just meditating and reflecting, if we do it singing praises, that you would use this as a time to prepare us for what is coming to prepare us for your will being done in the life of us individually and in the life um, of, of us as a church collectively. We give ourselves to you and ask that it would be done in your name and for your fame. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, church family, we will, um, we will log off. Um, again, Take a look at what we sent out ahead of time for family worship or individual worship. And again, um, if you have any questions at all, um, feel free to give Steve a ring, uh, give me a ring, give John a ring. Uh, we'd love to encourage you or come up with ways that we can continue to really um, direct our, our worship and our attention to the Lord in this season. Um, and uh, until then, we will uh, we'll be in touch. And, and, and again, respond well today. Like sit with this, respond, don't just fight, fight the urge to just move on and go grab lunch and, and you know, go grab more coffee or go change out of your track pants or whatever. Um, spend this time now responding well and reflecting well so that we can really lean into what God wants to do in us in this season. Okay, thankful for you guys and we'll, we'll talk soon.